Our solar system today is relatively stable. The eight major planets swing around the sun in precise orbits, while we've got a group of asteroids between Mars and Jupiter, the asteroid belt, and another group beyond Neptune called the Kuiper belt. While things are fairly sedate today, they weren't always so. When our system first formed 4.6 billion years ago, we think things might have been quite a bit more chaotic, so much so that some of the planets kind of moved around quite a bit. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune are all thought to have moved outwards, while Jupiter moved inwards and then maybe back out again, causing mayhem. The gravitational changes caused asteroids and comets to fly all over the place, impacting quite a few different planets and worlds in the solar system. Finding evidence for this though is quite difficult because it happened so long ago. But earlier this year we might have just found something, some evidence for this mixing taking place. So what did we see? I'm Jonathan O'Callaghan. And welcome to Stories from a Space Journalist. Hello everyone, and welcome to today's episode. Today we're going to be discussing two space stories that I reported on recently. Links to both of them are in the description of the episode. You can either read the stories first to get a better handle of what we'll be talking about, or read them after for a delicious cosmic dessert. Totally up to you. Coming up, we're going to be delving into some interesting new seismic results from Mars. They've revealed the interior of the red planet like never before, but how did we arrive at these results? It's a space interview with a bit of history involved, so, you know, something for everyone. First up though, we're speaking to Michael Marset from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Earlier this year, Michael was the co-author on a paper that announced an interesting discovery. It found two asteroids in the asteroid belt that were extremely red. That sounds weird, obviously, but the reason they were red was because they were rich in organic material, the building blocks of life, although not life itself, of course. The more organics you have, the more red light you reflect, so you appear redder. To have that many organics, they must have once had a lot of ice. That's just the nature of how these things kind of work. But the only problem is, nothing in the asteroid belt looks like this. Nothing has that much ice. You know what does have quite a lot of ice? The outer solar system, beyond Neptune. So Michael and his colleagues suggested, maybe these things didn't come from the asteroid belt. Maybe they came from that region beyond Neptune, the Kuiper belt, making them trans-Neptunian objects. So how did they get here? Well, it would have been the result of that planetary mixing we discussed at the start of the show. The movement of the giant planets would have pushed these two objects into the inner solar system more than 4 billion years ago. If true, it would be pretty amazing proof that that planetary migration really happened. And it would also give us this kind of rare opportunity to visit two objects from the outer solar system that kind of resided much closer to us. I covered the paper for the New York Times and spoke to Michael for the story. Here he is with more information. So there are some uh, dynamical models, uh, including the, the NIS model that were developed in around 2005 by people uh, at the NIST Observatory in France that predicted that a large fraction of bodies in the asteroid belt or implanted TNOs, implanted uh, object from the outer solar system. But usually these objects are substantially less red than what we see in the outer solar system. And so there is good evidence that these red objects, uh, so we call them P and D type asteroids usually, and also C types, uh, they were formed in the same region of the solar system as some TNOs. So, um, in that scenario, the solar system formed in a much more compact configuration with all the giant planets within about 
less than 20 astronomical units. So one astronomical unit is the distance between the current distance between the sun and, and the earth. And then uh, giant planets started to migrate it. And by doing so, they scattered a lot of objects from the outer solar system, from the ring of small bodies that were beyond the orbit of Neptune. They scattered it inward. And a lot of these objects were implanted in uh, the asteroid belt. But this object that we see today that we believe are these implanted objects, they are usually substantially less red than what we see in the outer solar system. These two objects that we discovered now, um, they look very much like uh, transneptunian objects. Obviously, this paper is about these two objects. So is there something, you mentioned that the, the redness, is there something that makes them jump out as being particularly interesting versus some of the other potentially distant objects? Yeah, yeah. so uh, their reflectance spectrum. So if what we're doing is uh, looking at the reflected light from uh, the sun on the surface of these objects, and the way these objects reflect the light from the sun give us information about uh, the surface composition of these objects. And in the case of these objects, the reflected uh, light is extremely red, which means that these two objects reflect more red light than blue light. And this is usually indicative of uh, complex organics at their surface. And that is something associated with TNOs more than asteroids? Yeah. So these red colors uh, is usually associated to TNOs. It probably indicates that these objects form beyond 20 times the distance between the Sun and the Earth. And these are really the first two objects, that red, that we see in the asteroid belt. So it means that they're particularly rich in organics? Yeah, that's what we think, yes. And why are TNOs uh, richer in organics than asteroids in the asteroid belt? In order to have these organics, you need to have a lot of, initially, you need to have a lot of ices at the surface of uh, these bodies. So they must have formed in a very cool, very, very cold environment. Uh, and then the, the, the solar radiation of the ices creates those complex organics, which are uh, very red. So at the surface of uh, asteroids that you see in the inner solar system, there weren't any ices when these objects formed because they were in a very hot environment. So we don't usually see these red colors uh, for objects that form uh, in the inner solar system. And what can we tell about the physical characteristics of these two objects? One of them is about 110 kilometers. So it probably tells us, if we believe in collisional models of the solar system, that it's uh, an object that never fragmented. It should be structurally intact. Whereas what we think... Uh, every object smaller than 100 kilometer or the collisional product, uh, there are fragments of lar larger objects. So we think uh, planetesimal in our solar system form big, 100 kilometer and larger, and everything that we see today that is smaller is probably a fragment of something larger. So one of these two objects, the one that we discovered in our survey of uh, large asteroids, is about 110 kilometer, uh, if I remember correctly. <laughs> And the other mm -hmm. one is, uh, is smaller. The density of this object uh, is probably very low. Uh, we, we, we can't measure it for these objects, but we have good analogs, and it's usually around the one uh, gram per cubic centimeter. The larger of these two objects, is it some sort of protoplanet, something like that? It's probably a good representation of what the building blocks of the planets were. I wouldn't call it a protoplanet because usually when we when we talk about protoplanet, we think about 
bodies that are larger. So typically uh, something like Vesta in the asteroid belt. And this one, I think it's around four or 500 kilometers in size. So it's substantially larger. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of one of them, maybe if having had a, a big impact and the other one being kind of intact, does that mean they would have different amounts of volatiles beneath their surface, that the larger one would have more ice and organics than the, the smaller one? So if, if the smaller one is uh, truly uh, the product of a fragmentation, it likely has less, less volatiles, but still it has this very red crust. So uh, somehow it must have, the crust must have survived. But yeah, maybe you would expect less volatiles. Also, you would expect a lower density for the fragmented one because then you get a lot of uh, porosity in the interior following the fragmentation. Uh, so cracks or... What are the implications here for the evolution of the solar system? Finding these things in the asteroid belt, you mentioned it was kind of predicted by models, but does that still tell us something about the solar system? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a, I think it's a very good argument in favor of uh, dynamical models of the solar system that make the giant planets migrate in the early solar system and that create a population of implanted objects from the outer solar system in the asteroid belt. And it shows that objects that form very far away in the solar system, so beyond 20 or 30 astronomical units, they could also have have been implanted in the asteroid belt. We didn't know that. All the potentially implanted objects that we knew so far, they could have formed in the original transplanetary region, so the region of formation of the giant planets, or slightly beyond. But here we have two objects that likely come from the much further away. The fact these two objects originated you know, 20 to 30 AU away, is that telling us anything different about planetary migration? It tells you that uh, you, you can have implanted objects that form so far away from the, from the sun in the asteroid belt. I think that's a very strong constraint for future simulation of the dynamical evolution of the solar system. Is it exciting that we have these kind of objects from very far away that are potentially within reach in the solar system? Well, yeah, that, that would be uh, great targets for, for a space mission because um, if they are indeed from the outer solar system, going to the outer solar system is uh, extremely challenging. You, you know, uh, we send a probe to uh, Pluto, New Horizon. I think it took nine years to get uh, to Pluto, and then you get a very, very quick flyby. But if you really want to know the composition of these uh, very red objects, uh, you want to return sample uh, a mission that will return some sample from the surface of these objects. Uh, the same th- same thing that we're doing now with uh, Osiris Rex and uh, Ayabusa too. So the fact that these objects, if they are really TNOs, they are very good targets for a space mission because we can easily go to the asteroid, but asteroid belt uh, for a return sample mission. It's much more easier than going to the outer solar system. A return sample mission to the outer solar system will take maybe 60 or 70 years. <laughs> yeah, whereas here, this would, I don't know, five, 10 years, something like that. Yeah. Seems like quite a good like freebie, like having these things so close to be able to do that. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that would be great target for a return sample mission. Yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned there were, there were some other potential TNO objects in the asteroid belt. So why would we yep. go to one of these two, two targets over one of the other potential ones? Yeah, I mean, if, if you want to know the compositional, the original compositional gradient of the solar system, what was the original composition of the solar system as a function of uh, distance from the sun, you'll need to be able to get samples from objects 
that form a different heliocentric distance from the sun. So it would be great to have both. It would be great to have return sample emission from P and D-type asteroids, which are quite common, and then these very red objects that probably form further away. But because they form further away, they form in a colder environment, so you'll get components uh, volatiles that you wouldn't find on the surface of uh, other kind of implanted uh, TNOs. How can we confirm these objects are TNOs? Is, is there any result we can get that would confirm their TNO status? It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to do. Uh, well, <laughs> in an ideal world, we, we'll need to sample those objects and then sample an object in the, in the TNO region. For now, we have to uh, rely on what we can do from the ground uh, as observation and uh, what a dynamical model predicts for the origin of these objects. And just going back to um, the sizes, you mentioned there was some model that suggested anything above 100 kilometers hadn't been impacted or, or disintegrated. So is that quite a loose definition, 100 kilometers either way, broken or not broken? Yeah, it's usually the limit we usually give between 100 and 120 kilometers. Just because anything smaller than that, we don't think smaller things would have formed. Is that right? Yeah, so for a long time, uh, without like a uh, planetesimal formed uh, bottom up, so you get like very small uh, dust grain that creates larger grains that create uh, small planetesimal that collides and create big planetesimal, etc. etc. Uh, we thought that was how uh, planetesimal formed. Uh, now we, we have a different view on, on how they form. We think at the time when they accreted, there was gas. Uh, in the solar system, and you had over densities or uh, of gas in some location or lower density, and so you create clumps of uh, very uh, small dust, and then uh, these clumps will very quickly uh, collapse, uh, gravitationally collapse under its own gravitation, and then you form very quickly objects that are 100 kilometers in size. What the simulation, numerical simulation, show is that the body you form are quite big, and the size frequency distribution of a planet small in our solar system, uh, if you want to fit it, it works very well if you assume that all the planets small form big and then they fragment it. It's really hard to explain the size frequency distribution, so the number of objects as a function of size in our solar system in a bottom-up scenario. up, we're heading to Mars once again. In July this year, scientists announced some exciting new results from NASA's InSight Lander, a stationary machine that landed on Mars in 2018. The lander has a seismometer, which it can use to study seismic waves from Mars quakes, which are basically like earthquakes, but well, on Mars. <laughs> However, while earthquakes are mostly caused by our planet's tectonic activity, on Mars there isn't any tectonic activity, there's no shifting plates. Instead, they're caused by the planet's natural contraction and expansion, the impact of meteorites on the surface, and maybe some volcanic activity too. The main thing to note though is that by measuring these waves, we can accurately model the interior of Mars. And these scientists did this for the first time ever. In a series of papers published in the journal Science, they learned that the core was much bigger than we thought. They also learned that Mars had quite a different mantle to Earth, and its crust was also thinner than we thought. I covered the research for Scientific American, which you can read in the description below. But as part of my research, I spoke to Andrew Lazarevich. The interview didn't make it into the article in the end, but it was pretty interesting. Andrew wasn't part of this latest work, 
but he had been involved in a previous NASA mission, Viking 2, in 1976. This carried the first attempt at a seismometer on Mars, but the results were inconclusive. We're not sure if it actually managed to detect any Mars quakes. Andrew, though, thought it might have done. So I spoke to him about his work on the mission and his thoughts on the latest insight findings. So here's what he thought. Enjoy. Viking was a uh, mission that landed in 1976. It was the first first soft lander or a successful soft lander as, as, as opposed to crashed soft lander. Uh, but it was the first soft lander on Mars. We had, there were two landers. We had a seismometers on each one of them. One of them failed for a very stupid reason, and one of them worked, and the one that worked is where we did our work. The Viking results were somewhat marginal because we have only one maybe Mars quake that we had. The basic issue was that we had a low-sensitivity seismometer compared to what they have inside has. They are also planted on the surface. We were planted on top of the lander. That was the only option we had. We have 13 people on our team. They have 175. So we were kind of like an exploratory team. But I worked on I worked on that team for the life of the team. What I'm trying to do is to take the insight data. I've always wanted to, since a graduate student, that was the guy who, did, who first saw our one maybe event on Viking. And having it published as maybe, it was been driving me crazy for 40 years. And so with the insight data, I'm, I am hoping to resolve our maybe Mars quake on Viking. Many of the lessons that we had from Viking, they used in the design of insight. So there is connection between these two spacecraft, even though there's 40, they're 42 years apart. And this maybe signal you think you saw, what did that kind of correspond to? When was it detected and what, what did it look like? It, was call, it is called the Sol 80. Sol is the Martian day for day of the year or the day after landing. Um, so it is on the 80th day. We had a number of events that we could see, but all of the events were... We called it correlated. I call it coincidental because I think there's a basic uh, difference in those two terms. They were all coincidental with, and we believe they were correlated with. Coincidental means at the same time. Correlated means they actually affected each other. And uh, they were correlated with the wind gusts. So as soon as we had a wind gust, we got a, a waveform from them. And so that happened time after time after time. And so we simply wrote it off as being sensitive to the wind. Being on top of the lander, we see the lander vibrations. There there is a meteorological boom on the lander that can vibrate. And all these things can be driven by the wind and those vibrations we would see. The Sol 80 event was highly unusual. It happened during a quiet time of the day. Unfortunately for us, that one day, the wind data failed to transmit or failed to be received. We were not unable to recover the wind data from that day. If we would have seen that there was no wind gusts, that would make a strong case for this Sol 80 being a Mars quake. If we did see a, a, a wind gust at that time, then we could say, well, it's, it may be like the other ones. But there are also other attributes about the data. We wrote it up in our Journal of Geophysical Research paper in 1977, and in there, they wrote a number. We wrote a number of things that 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 event made that Sol 80 event different, but we couldn't prove it. And because we couldn't prove it, it became a maybe event. If it 
can be proven to it, then it would have been the first event seen on Mars. And just to clarify, the, the signal you would have seen, what sort of size quake did that correspond to and where would it have been on the Martian surface? It's a, a magnitude of approximately 2.8, a Richter magnitude of 2.8 at a distance of 110 kilometers. Did you have a possible source for the Mars quakes you saw, volcanic activity or, or a meteorite hitting the surface, maybe? Well, volcanic surfaces, we, volcanic processes, we don't know. The distances are based on our crustal models, which are based on our guess, uh, our guess at the time of what the crust might be. So if that holds up, then the 2.9 magnitude and 110 kilometer distance to our event would be somewhat reasonable, but it needs more work to confirm that. For a meteorite impact, that was an obvious choice because one of the things we see in our signal, it has a possible reverberation, which would mean you get multiple reflections off of the crustal interface with whatever's below it back to surface and another bounce off the bottom. And each one of these arrives a little bit later. And if that's the case, then we should be able to turn to be able to see a, a an impact. We didn't see any evidences of impacts. We were somewhat surprised by, by the lack of that. And I asked the inside folks about that, and they feel that they have not identified any impacts that, I, that I'm aware of. And they have told me that in order, for, in order to be able to detect an impact, it's highly limited in distance and in the size of the uh, meteorite that would have to be to do that. On the moon, the lunar folks saw a lot of impacts, but Mars has enough of an atmosphere that it can ablate the smaller meteorites. I do not know the status of the science right now about the impact of what they can be or can't be. But for us on Sol 80, there are only two options we were really looking at, impact or Mars quake. Given the scientific goals of Viking 2's seismometer, now that we kind of seem to have these results from InSight, is that pretty exciting to see that we can now measure the, the core, the, the mantle, the other aspects? Oh, yes. In fact, if <laughs> I read through the papers, then I went back to our write-ups in our, in our documentation, what we thought Mars was like. And there are some similarities, but the difference in resolution is phenomenal. The inside folks have been able to take different pieces of single waveforms and disassemble them into smaller chunks from which they could get separate pieces of information. I never thought that in the 70s, that would have not been possible to do, but they can do it. And uh, they've been able to put, put together one of these papers, talks about, uh, I think they call it frequency binning. I can see exactly what that can do, and they have the tools to do it. So the fact that they can do it and they can extract this information, I think that what they've produced will be key to putting, hopefully, a real seismic network on Mars that where you can get multiple seismometers actually talking to each other. And that would be really great to have. What could that tell us about Mars? Well, that would be able to build the entire structure. That would be able to us to use, it's similar to, to CAT scans, where if you have a single event and you can locate it, and then you look at all these different arrivals at the different stations, 
the different phases, for example, there's a, a P wave, which is if you take the source and you, it's a vibration in that along that line in that direction. It's called a longitudinal wave or a compressional wave. And the shear waves go sideways. So they go, they would be vibrating sideways as they as they pass through. They have different speeds and they have different properties as they reflect off of mantles and crust and liquid solid interfaces. So the shear waves, the ones that go sideways, the shear waves do not propagate through liquids. The compressional waves can. And so using that kind of information, you can gather information about the core. You can find out what its transmission properties are, and then you compare that with them with the geophysical and geochemical models of what must be there to try to constrain what the composition of the core is, what the composition of the mantle is. What we could have done in Viking, we could have been able to constrain things like density, perhaps in a few places where the interface might lie, the actual physical location, the boundary between a crust and a mantle. What these folks are doing is they're doing a whole lot more detail than we could have ever done. If you had something more than that, you could build a model for Mars's early history, for its volcanic capability. For example, one of the things they talk about, they have, they notice that um, one of their conclusions says that the magnetic field of Mars used to be similar to strength of that with the magnetic field of Earth, but it isn't now. Well, that magnetic field of the Earth is critical to the existence of life on Earth. So if we're looking for life on Mars, then the magnetic field at that time could have created enough enough of a protective ionosphere, ionosphere magnetospheric field to maybe protect some sort of life forms. I mean, I'm shooting through my, I'm just shooting through generalizations right now. But these kind of things given to the right scientists with the right data and the right knowledge can be carried quite far. Are there volcanic tunnels in Mars in which you can build? Well, that would require there to be volcanism on Mars. So one of the options that I've read about in the popular press, you can build a, um, you can build a Mars colony, which is susceptible to, to radiation problems. Or if you can find the cave, you just build a front end to the cave and move into the cave. Well, if you could do that, is that even possible? Those are the kind of things that geophysical models can tell you. What are the volcanisms? What are, uh, how big, if there are Mars quakes, how big are they? How frequent are they? Are they going to be a problem for structures? Are they going to be a problem for rockets that land and are supposed to take off from there again and they suddenly they move? These kind of questions are, have some practical implications as well. Do you think these are all pointing to the fact that Mars is still volcanically active? I don't think it is, personally. It used to be volcanically active. Whether it's volcanically active now or not is unknown. If you believe what Viking did and that it predicted that Vi- that Mars does not have any te- does not have any significant tectonic activity, you know, there's no plate no plate motions, no plate dynamics. If that's the case, then that's that would be the case because the seismicity is so low that if it had plates, then that would happen. Well, the plates are largely driven by volcanic activity in, inside the Earth. But that's part of what all of this is about. If they're seeing dozens of Mars quakes, like what else could be causing them apart from volcanic activity? Uh, from my observations, there appear to be two types. 
and I think it's also from some of their re- the readings of some of their their notes. There's a there's a type of Mars quake that's that's very weak, that's very that's very small, that's mer- that's more lunar like. Perhaps the bulk of them are lunar like, but a few of them have characteristics that are more like the Earth, and there may be two different types of of Mars quakes. Now, when I look at the data, I think I can see it. So when I've been looking for events or try to find events that are helpful to me, I find that they split into two categories. And when I look at it, uh, I don't know quite what to make of it. The inside people have to be the ones who make the call on how many different types there are and why they might be different and are they Mars quakes or something else? They sure look like Mars quakes. I certainly agree with that. But what their actual sources are, are still not clear to me. It may be clear to them, but it's not clear to me right now. Just finally, how big a deal are these insight results? You know, we're getting our first look really into Mars. Like, is that transformational? Is it very important in our understanding of not just Mars and Earth, but other planets too? Well, there's two types of planet, two major types of planets, and that's that seems to be probably the case with exosolar planetary systems when they look for other planetary systems. But we have the gaseous ones, which are Jupiter and out, and the rocky ones, which are Mars and in. They all developed about the same time, and is our is our solar system unique or not is unknown. Um, we think of ourselves as unique, and sometimes we think of ourselves that all other solar systems have got to look like this one. Well, we've been learning from other ones that they're not all of them look like this one. But we know there are gaseous ones elsewhere. We don't know. We're guessing that there are rocky ones in here. But they all play with each other. What Mars was like in the past and what Venus was like in the past and what it turned out to be today can have direct re- relevance to, to the Earth, what we actually evolved like. What was the atmosphere like? Where did it come from? The, were meteorite impacts really important? Like We believe the Im- meteorite impact on Yucatan changed the atmosphere and, and, and the, ran the dinosaurs into extinction. Is that a critical piece of the evolution of the surface of a planet? Venus looks like it possibly had an Earth-like environment billions of years ago. We believe Mars had an atmosphere billions of years ago, and there's all the evidence that there are things like look like water flow on Mars. But all these these planets are all interrelated. What we learn from one applies to another. They were all formed in the same look in roughly the same location at roughly the same time. And the differences and their evolutions will can tell us very much of who we are what the Earth was and what it what it will be, what its natural state will be. The inside people have certainly narrowed down the internal structure and structure of Mars to a phenomenal level. Probably, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, probably better than on the Moon. The seismic events, the seismic data from the Mars seems to be a lot more specific on Mars than they have been on the Moon. And that's only from one lander. If we had a whole bunch of them, who knows what we'd find. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining and to both my guests for speaking with me. 
As before, if you haven't read the two stories from today's show yet, you'll find links to both of them in the description below. Do give them a read for a bit more information. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next week, that's goodbye for me. I'll see you next time in the universe. This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.